it's our absolute pleasure to welcome Rafe Kelly to the podcast. He is from Evolve, Move, Play. So Rafe, welcome to the podcast. Awesome. It's great to be here. Just for, there's obviously a lot of people um, will know know you and know what uh, what all your uh, Evolve, Move, Play is about. But just for the, for the one guy out there or girl out there that hasn't yet come across you, would you just give the listeners like a little bit of background into what where you're at what your training is like what, how the evolution of that where have you got to this position um, that you're at where you're you're looking at training from quite a unique perspective yeah so the the evolving play name is basically kind of the the, the the description of what we do right or, or what we're all about we believe that human beings evolve for movement that sedentary lifestyles are really destructive to us not just physically but also mentally and emotionally and that we evolve to move actually predominantly through play that play is actually the primary learning system for movement and it's the best guide to the types of movements that are most relevant to human beings so if we look at the way that people play in cultures that are consistent across cultures around the world those are the most relevant patterns and types of activities that humans should engage in to sustain the health of you know, once again the body but also the emotions and, and and the cognitive capacities so so that's kind of the, the basis of what we do and how i got there you know the real quick and dirty version is i've been doing martial arts since i was six years old i've been um doing gymnastics i started gymnastics stuff when i was 15 and then at 23 i discovered parkour and a lot you know, through that same process, I was also a anthropology student. And so when I discovered parkour, it took me back to running around in the woods and as, as a kid, but it also took me back to reading all this ethnographic literature about how people played in other cultures. And so I started seeing this connection between, between parkour as kind of a, a, a revelation of something that was deeply ingrained in human and really primate play and had kind of been rediscovered and then that was a pathway towards thinking about the types of movements that the human beings most needed in a more broad sense and so i've been i i I was kind of one of the early leaders of the parkour community here in the united states i co-founded the third parkour gym in north america and then five years ago I, i i walked away from the gym and decided to kind of debut this broader concept of movement um, and, and get people back moving in nature because I felt like that was the most important place for people to to kind of nourish their body, mind, and and, and soul, as it were. Yeah, that's amazing, Rafe. One thing that we definitely can connect with there is one thing that I love about calisthenics is is being able to do it anywhere and hanging my rings over a tree or I actually learned to, to do a lot of handstand well, handstand early days work was on the beach um, and getting outside of the gym and, and, and being able to sort of play in nature was a, a big part of the, the, the attraction I think as we got into it yeah uh, one of the things I just wanted to touch on quickly was when, when you talked about play and it's a really interesting thought and, and um, the combination with your anthropology background and it's something I've thought about before and plays a massive part of how we want to coach calisthenics and movement what are the big differences that we see in, in cultures across the world and how they approach play I'd imagine it's, there's massive differences between what we do in, in the UK and the US compared to what it looks like in Africa and Asia and, and those other sort of different cultures and communities well we live in a culture that's remarkably anti-play that's that's sort of unique um, we, you know, we, we tend not to see play as serious. If you look at hundred forager cultures, which, you know, theoretically are the best model for what, you know, kind of humans have evolved for, uh, 
they they tend not to actually make a strong distinction or often don't have a word that's distinct between work and play. So when they look at kids running around and jumping and climbing trees and they describe what they do, they describe it essentially with using the same word as they would for, for the activity of going on a hunt. And they'd use the same word to describe maybe getting together to have a big dance. So, um, so that distinction that we have is fairly unique. And we have this very, you know, obviously, uh, as, as English-speaking people, there's this idea of the Protestant work ethic. And, and, and there's a, this value that's been placed on hard grinding work, which is useful. I mean, I'm very, <laughs> you know, because I'm about play doesn't mean that I don't think that people need to, to work hard. But I think that we've, we've, we've failed to recognize the value of that play si- uh, system. Mm-hmm. So there are certain aspects of play that are, that are very specific to, to, uh, to given cultures because, um, you know, we're cultural animals. Uh, but there's also aspects of play that are really universal. And that's the stuff that I'm particularly interested in. What are the universals of play? And if you look at play research, you know, essentially they, they talk about locomotor play, movement, moving your own body, manipulative play, um, playing with objects or object-oriented play, and interactive play, playing with other people. And there's, there's the physical aspects of that. And then you get into the social aspects of play, like narrative play. And, um, and, you know, social role play. So social role play and narrative play is really distinctive from culture to culture. And there's games that are distinct from culture to culture because we, we do different things in different cultures. So, you know, a uh, classic game is Ring Around the Rosie. You guys are familiar with that, right? Yeah. yeah. That's, that's, a very, uh, that's a very European traditional thing because it's literally encoding European history. That's about the plague. So no, they don't play exactly like that in uh, mm. like Pinky Piggy. Um, and you know when kids play house, uh, you know they play out the roles that they see in the society around them. So if you're growing up as a Mbuti Pygmy, um, then the boys are going to spend a lot of time shooting arrows. Or uh, maybe a better example for that would be the the Kung or the Hadza. Uh, you know they 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 hunt predominantly using bow and arrows, and so the little boys they start playing with bow and arrows from a very very early age. Mm. And, uh, and so that kind of stuff is a bit specific to the culture, but there's aspects of play that are essentially universal in every culture, which is, uh, those more physical aspects of play everywhere in the world. Kids love to run, jump and climb and practice acrobatics. And everywhere in the world, kids love to dance and everywhere in the world, kids love to, to play with objects. And a lot of that, uh, is kind of, you know, basically stick and ball games, tons of variations around playing with sticks and balls, but, um, uh, you know, essentially we, we have this, like a ball is, is a really interesting object because we create them. We, you know, we'll, kids will weave them out of, out of bark in cultures that don't have, you know, obviously uh, factory manufactured soccer balls and, and people weave these little kind of round objects because they're useful for us somehow in, 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 in play across the world. And then, <clears throat> And then obviously there's the interactive play, which is the rough and tumble play. And you see common patterns in that as far as people wrestle everywhere, right? Wrestling is a cultural universal. People play games of trying to physically hold somebody else down or physically throw somebody. Yeah. And then, uh, and then there's, there's a dance element. I think maybe I mentioned that already, but those are kind of the things that you see everywhere. And obviously dance is different from one culture to another. If you're, if you grew up in the highlands of Scotland and, you know, 200 years ago, 
you'd be doing reels and, and, and step dancing. Um, whereas if you grew up in Africa, you know, it, it's a very different style of dance, um, much more animal mimicry, a lot of getting the hips low and, and kind of different stuff. But the, but the universal thing is that everybody dances. Yeah. And usually there's solo dance and partner dance and group dance. That's part of like every culture in the world. Yeah. And it's, it's really interesting to, when you're looking back at and, and you're looking at uh, young children, babies and like that learning process and how play is such an important part of that. When we become adults, we think about, um, think about think about training and how we try and do our, our training or our physical exercise and when you were telling your story about how when you found um sort of parkour or being part of that initial phase and it being feeling like it was going back to um almost wrestling around as a kid the kids if you watch if you see kids like tim's just got a, a young boy's how old is he now 20 months yeah and like you see what they what they do, and even at that young age, but also as, as an older age, they're they're naturally they might be doing parkour, they might be doing gymnastics, or they might be doing something like calisthenics, but they don't know they're doing that thing. They're just having some fun, exploring what their how their body can move and what their body can do. And I love the the slogan on your website that says, "Learn how to move like a human," rather than in this day and age, as we sort of over engineer different training mechanisms of being like, Oh, you're going to, we're going to try to learn. We're going to move like, or train like a, a gladiator or a, I don't know, these different things rather than actually I love your message. And it's, I love the simplicity of your message that actually as humans, we can do amazing things. Like we our slogan, we talk about redefining your impossible. And if you, if anyone that sees like, um, the stuff that just flies around, um, like the people of all people are awesome. Um, yeah, stuff yeah. On, you, know, so you see what people can do and you're like it is ridiculous and and actually we probably just don't do ourselves justice because we we don't um well you talked about sedentary we don't maybe as we get older we don't do these things and the other thing that just popped into mind as you were talking was around that we restrict particularly probably in in um particularly in the, well we're in the uk like we we put a lot of rules around young around everything particularly mm -hmm. children we probably restrict that play sometimes too much but we also want to we want a name we want a to put ourselves in a box for that sort of identity of oh, i'm gonna do parkour or i'm gonna do calisthenics rather than just i'm gonna i'm gonna move and i'm gonna i'm gonna train i'm gonna just gonna explore and see what happens we don't we don't seem to give ourselves that freedom enough. I'm probably getting a bit too deep and deep and meaningful, but do you, do you know what I'm saying? But that your message is yeah. resonating certainly. Yeah, with our own. Yeah. <clears throat> There's some big themes in there that that we could pick up and run with. Um, the theme of identity, I think, is a really a huge theme, and, and the fact that our identities are wrapped up in stories, and yeah. so we we you know we we become a, a parkour guy or a calisthenics guy etc because because we have a necessity for some sort of central story that gives meaning to our identity and that's actually a, a key aspect of, of of my work um of what of what's going on kind of philosophically underneath the surface mm. um and then uh yeah and then there's the the theme of of you know that we don't allow enough play and then that's a huge a huge component of kind of a lot of the reasons that we're a lot of the problems that we're facing in society with you know obesity with depression with anxiety with suicide um with i think a lot of the gender crisis actually has to do with a lack of play um so 
so that's the second theme that we could go over. And then, you know, the, the whole idea of what, what is a human really capable of? What does it mean to be, uh, move like a human being? And I think that people really uh, vastly underestimate just how magnificent human beings are as moving animals. Yeah. I've got a quick question, Ray, which might kind of underpin all of those, just to put a bit of context um, yeah. under some of the discussions. You, you talk about sort of like how people engaging in a natural movement program or, or natural movement. Over the years, I've done a lot of work in strength and conditioning um, with athletes. And occasionally we, we have this conversation of like, how do we define athleticism? Um, yeah. I'm just interested. How do you, de- how do you define natural movement? Mm-hmm. So to me, natural movement is movement that is that is optimized for the movements that are more most relevant throughout human evolution so i don't think of movements as natural and unnatural in a binary sense i think of it as a, a as a spectrum right so everything that a human being does is capable is something we're capable of because of our nature because of what we're what we evolved for but there are some movements that are relatively novel for the body that uh that, that you could say are less natural or less kind of inherently resonant with human nature or the way that the, the body was structured by evolution. So typing at a computer um, for long periods of time or sitting at a chair for long periods of time, it's kind of an unnatural thing for a human being to do. Whereas climbing a tree is an extremely natural thing. Today, hunter-forger cultures engage in, um, uh, spend a lot of time in trees because trees are where you find eggs and fruit and um and honey. And those are some of the most important calorie resources that you can find in most, uh, uh, in most environments. And then people also go hunt in trees. You know, you may shoot an animal like a monkey or a bird and have to go up and get it out of the tree, or you can hunt by ambushing things out of trees, like the Mbuti pygmy ambush elephants out of trees, for instance. Um, so that's, uh, so that's, that's kind of what I mean when I'm talking about, about, about natural. I don't, I don't love the term natural, actually. I think that it's, um, that it, it tends to be, it's, uh, it's one of these words that, that we use a lot in marketing and, and, and the meaning gets a bit washed out and it's kind of like, you know, home style or homemade or, you know, (laughs) it's used so much, but I use it because it's, it's kind of a touch point that's going to be very obvious and relevant for the audience. Whereas if I talk about evolutionary, um, people don't necessarily have the same story about that, have the same meaning around that. But that's really what I mean, is that it's relevant to human evolution. In terms of your movement practice, what does, just again, just help to people understand a little bit if they've not seen some of your stuff. I've seen some, some great videos from you if you just... Um, elegantly and gracefully moving through um, through trees and over different objects and it, that real kind of like flow is it really kind of like it's really impressive to see but what does your training look like or if you want to call it movement look like or should yeah. Yeah, do you um, even call practice. it training yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. practice yeah I do train um, not everything that I do is something I would call training right so uh, my friend Rory Miller who's a self-defense coach he has a really nice distinction he talks about the difference between um that, you know, within training or working with somebody, you have teaching. So that's when you're verbally kind of gathering information. Um, you have drilling, which is repetitively doing something. Uh, you have conditioning, which is, you know, operant conditioning. And then you have play, and that's where you explore things. So I, I kind of think about my, my stuff the same way. I train to develop capacities, right? I drill things or repeat movements in order to to build 
capacity in my body to do things that are interesting to me and relevant to me. And then I play a lot with stuff. And then I try to live a life that, that provides me a lot of movement stimulus. So I, uh, so it's really variable depending on the season and depending what, what's going on. So for instance, over the last block of time, right, I was just in Europe. I left, uh, I left on the 24th and I just got back on the 20th. So 24th of September to the 20th of October, I was over in Europe and I had a seven day workshop in Spain and then a two day workshop in, um, in London. So I did, I did, uh, I had four days to prep in Spain where I was basically spending five to six hours a day, um, learning and really training in the spots where I was going to be working with people. Um, because that's how I map out and really understand the spot is just going through the process of training there myself. And then I was doing that and demoing for people for, for the next seven days. And so I had a, like two light days in there or, or rest days and then a rest day afterwards. And then I went to Wales and I had two days of training in Wales and then went to the, went to London, had a day of, of, uh, of just exploring Hampstead Heath prepping for my workshop. And then I had a five hour training day in, in London. And then I had my two days of workshop Then I went to Copenhagen. I took basically uh, two days off in Copenhagen and then had two days of very hard training in Copenhagen. So that, that, you know, that's, that's a kind of unique period of time right i wouldn't normally be training like that and my training in that case was almost was mostly when i was training on my own it was mostly the natural parkour stuff movement in nature um because that's where you know i'm in unique environments and i get to play and see see stuff that i wouldn't otherwise see um now that i'm back here i'm going to start doing some weightlifting. i'm going to start doing some basic uh, calisthenics, some, you know, working on some tuck planges, some, some muscle ups, some L sits, you know, I've, uh, I've gotten I've put on a fair amount of muscle mass in my shoulders recently, and I've lost some flexibility in extension and it's affecting some of my vaults. So I really need to open up and, and cultivate the flexibility in my shoulders. Um, I also have just historically for the longest time, I've really struggled with dorsiflexion. So whenever I have some time where I'm can put, focused energy on a, on a capacity. I'm always trying to, to improve my ankles and build up my dorsiflexion and improve my mechanics through that. So. Right. I'm just going to touch on when you, when you talk about um, capacity, it's just, interesting, it's just interesting you hear about talking about that in, in some different contexts. So capacity for you could be quality of movement. I'm assuming it could be some skill acquisition. It could be actually uh, capacity in terms of volume. Is that all fall under that same um, sort of that, terminology for you yeah so um i i tend to sort of divide things between uh skill work and and physical capacity development so when i'm when i'm thinking capacity development i'm generally thinking like you know i'm trying to make to to make a change in my physicality that will allow me to practice skills that are important to me yeah Yeah, so it could be a strength thing it could be a movement it could be a flexibility thing yeah, so it's mobility. quite nice um, but when, you've, when you're back to your normal sort of routine, shall we say, whether that's the right word or not, but the, there's, a, there's a mixture, a variety of things that you are doing as part of your training. Do you, find, do you find it difficult to fit all those things in if you're doing, you know, <laughs> about weightlifting, parkour, calisthenics, yeah. and I think, crikey, I struggle to fit in 
the stuff I want to do for for the, for pure sort of calisthenics stuff that we do. That, that is that a is that a difficult thing? Have you found a good way to juggle that? I think that's <laughs> that a lot of people um, that will be listening will struggle with trying to do everything that they want to do in a week. Um, yeah, and you've got work and you've got life and you've got family and you've got everything else to fit in as well. Yeah, I have, uh, I have three children um, yeah. and a wife who needs my attention and a business. Um, yeah, I definitely do. Like, you know, basically right now I'm trying to try to figure out where to allocate my resources. So I, I will continue to train my primary, you know, basically I have my group of students here and, and training partners who I work with. And what we're going to be doing on a, you know, basically two to three days a week basis is you know the natural parkour and the rough and tumble stuff which with my more advanced students basically uh is basically mma and contact dance so so we'll be you know we'll be working on you know we usually we mix it up so we'll do some drilling some like hitting tie pads um some kind of development of uh of specific skills for for mma and then we'll do kickboxing rounds we'll do uh, basically judo or standing grappling focused rounds. We'll do uh, BJJ focused rounds on the ground and we'll, we'll do rounds where we kind of mix all those together. And we'll do that uh, sometimes with MMA gloves, sometimes just using uh, palm strikes and sometimes uh, we'll actually do that bare knuckle. Mm. And then, and then we'll mix that up with, uh, with, with basically acrobatic contact improv dance. Um, and then we'll do a lot of joint integrity partnering work, uh, like earthquake architecture stuff. We've seen, um, seen fighting monkey. So that's what I'll be doing with my training partner. So I've about three days a week that I'll be doing that. And then I have some time that I need to focus on my own personal strength goals, which I mentioned to you guys. And then yeah. I want like to go out and take some classes, um, to train. And so I have to kind of decide right now, am I going back to jujitsu? Am I going back to Muay Thai? Am I going to do some ballet? That'd be really interesting for me for cultivating some of the, the flexibility and, and qualities of movement that I want. Um, am I going to do capoeira? (laughs) Obviously I can't do all of these things. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, So so right now it's like, okay, what, what is going to give me the biggest bang for my buck, you know, Mm -hmm. or what is going to be the thing that, that meets the the, the most weak areas in my practice? Um, Like I think as a, like from a personal movement standpoint, like hitting some of my big goals, I might like to go do some training with a gymnastics coach. Mm. Um, because I have some some acrobatic goals that I that I want to to kind of kind of knock out, but the but then I feel like for cultivating some of the things that are most important to me to to teach people, the richest source for me to go to is probably Capoeira, because I'm really interested in uh, the gameplay. I'm really interested in the cultivation of music and dance, um, and and kind of folklore and all those things and how those wrap into a single movement culture and i think capoeira is unique in the breadth of the movement culture that of the culture that exists within it um in many ways and so that's a really interesting place for me to go and study so that's that's a little bit of my decision making right now yeah yeah no it's really interesting if um just about something to if we're um say starting to stir up uh within somebody that would consider themselves a beginner in terms of exploring a bit more of this um, this play, this um, natural or type of, of of training, whether it be sort of like calisthenics or parkour or um, 
whatever it may be, that's just quite different to what they've done before. Maybe they've just done some traditional gym work or fitness-based work. What would what would some advice be from you for somebody wanting to like, you know, with with pretty much zero experience in this type of thing? How would how would you recommend or any tips for them if they were just starting out on this type of journey? Yeah. So um, my, my general advice for someone who wants to start a natural movement practice is that they should take a walk every day, um, try to walk two to three miles if possible. Um, walking is kind of the biggest missing movement nutrient because we would have walked, you know, a lot of times 10 plus miles a day in an ancestral environment. Uh, if people can be barefoot, that's great. If people can be moving over natural terrain, that's even better. Time outside is is really valuable just in and of itself. People need exposure to the sun, actually particularly in winter because it's harder to get the light. Yeah. Um, but getting getting enough light is really critical to all sorts of systems in the body. So that's a big that's a big component. I would say start sitting on the ground. Like right now, I'm, I'm sitting on the ground holding my baby who's just fallen asleep in my arms. Um, but uh, basically, replacing time in a chair with time on the ground is like free mobility gains. Uh, you, you know, essentially, you're conditioning your hips, your ankles, your knees um, to to mobility and your spine, for that matter. When you sit on the ground, you have to shift around a lot. You have to adopt a variety of positions, and those positions are all essentially mobility challenges for most people in the West. Um, and also you're conditioning, uh, you know, the tissues to, to contact with harder surfaces. So that's really a basic one is ground sitting. So walking, ground sitting, um, you know, I really like, you know, any kind of interactive play that you can get. So whether it's take up jujitsu or take up a partner dance class, it doesn't matter. It's just like you need to be physically moving with another human being at some point in your, in your week. Uh, it's really nourishing for us. And I think, you know, uh, getting out into nature and hanging from something, climbing, climbing a tree, climbing a rock is really valuable for people. And then the biggest thing I think people need to do is they need to find something that's deeply motivational. What makes them fall in love with movement, whether it's parkour or partner dance or, you know, calisthenics, whatever it is, once you tap into your passion, uh, then you can you can make the sacrifices to sustain a practice. I think our culture is so focused on work and it's so focused on uh, the idea of fitness that a lot of times people don't do the thing that would actually motivate them because they don't feel like they deserve it until they start working out. And then they never work out because they hate working out. Yeah. They almost, um, they know they need to be more active and need to be, um, need to be exercising because they know it's good for them. And we, we, I think we're society is a place where we know that that's good, but we, like you say, we, we can often struggle to put that into practice, whether it's from a motivational point of view, because we actually do the only thing. Some, for sometimes it's the only thing we might know is something that's quite um, boring or we don't like. I've got a friend that lost a lot of weight um, doing CrossFit. Um, yeah. But the sad thing was that he, and he still does it, but he doesn't like, he says he hates it. It hates probably strong, but he doesn't like it. It doesn't, mm-hmm. Um, but it got him, he lost a, you know, a couple of stone doing it and felt better for the exercise, but he didn't actually find the, that he didn't find it fun and engaging and motivating. The only thing that he knew was, was that, and it had given him some health benefit results that he, that he wanted to do and needed to do. Um, and it's these types of conversations we're having, I, I hope reach people in that type, those types of, um, scenarios not to do with CrossFit, but to do with just being stuck in a, 
in, a, in an exercise regime that actually you don't find enriching, you don't find enjoying, you don't love it, you don't find it motivating and actually go, you know what, you can you can do something, you can do something different um, and still get all those benefits and potentially even more depending on what you were doing. I mean, I started my calisthenics journey off the back of um, a rugby career that when I finished playing rugby, um, I carried on training in the gym like I was going to be playing rugby, even though I'd finished, because that's all I knew. And I got very bored of just lifting lifting weights. And I remember watching, looking at myself doing bicep curls in the mirror and asked myself the question, what on earth are you doing? Like, you could do anything and you're still here doing this. Like, take advantage of the fact that you can do, you know, you can train in any way you like, explore something a bit different. And, and that's what that, that journey started for me. And I found that incredibly um freeing and enjoyable and i think can't imagine not doing some more stuff like this and the more i do the more i want to try and explore other bits and pieces um within training yeah there's a that that kind of takes me back personally to that theme of identity right your identity was wrapped up in being a rugby player and you did what rugby players did and and to step outside of that is is a challenge for people. It's a challenge for people to see a new a new story. And I think that people don't they, they don't see all the options that are out there. It's very difficult to see all the options that are out yeah. there. The real story around um, around fitness being about suffering. It's funny. It's funny you said something about that. Uh, and actually. I have a, full, a little funny story about that because I just hired a, a, a young guy to work on my social media and help me kind of keep keep things turning over when I was um, over overseas. And then he's also working on some online courses that we're developing, and he, he does some good work. But he's he comes from a fitness background, and he's still kind of really getting to know our brand. And so he he put up uh, an image yesterday. It was an image of one of my uh, students. Uh, doing a big swing to precision uh, on a tree branch. And he, he put a quote over that, which was a quote by Muhammad Ali, which was, I hated every moment of training. I told myself, <laughs> train today, uh, suffer today and be a champion forever. Yeah. And, and I, I deleted it because I was like, well, that's precisely the opposite of what we're yeah, all about, yeah. right? The, the point is that what we do is to unlock the joy and the love that people can experience in moving their body and that people don't have to engage in practices that are, that are pure supper fests to get the kind of results that they want, because actually you're, you're built with an inborn desire to move and that, that inborn desire to move is your play drive. And what happens in our culture is that we shut it down by putting kids in chairs and by punishing them for engaging in play. So you see, you know, you're in the UK, you've got all these signs all over. No ball games here. <laughs> yeah. Oh, definitely no ball games. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe no. something, some, something might happen. We might develop a good footballer one day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no sure. parkour. No, yeah. no, you know, if you go to a, like a, you know, a lot of public spaces, it's like no running, no diving, no wrestling, no climbing this. It's like, well. No heavy petting at the swimming pool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, uh, uh, this is actually something that I, I got from Andrew Espina from FRC. I really liked it. He is saying, you know, um, basically like a lot of what we're doing is just asking people not to behave like human beings. 
So the, the analogy that popped into my head was, you know, imagine if dogs had built Western civilization, you know, there'd be signs all over saying, don't pee on the signs. <laughs> yeah. Right. Because it says, you know, you're not allowed to, you're not allowed to act like a human being. That's, that's essentially what we're telling people, especially children is all the natural drive that you have to enjoy your body and what it's capable of and to explore your environment, explore your relationships with other people. We don't want you doing that because it disturbs us. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so what we do is we take people's inherent drive for movement and we punish them for it until they stop engaging in it. And then when they become unhealthy, we tell them that they need to engage in fitness and fitness is, is basically industrial reductionism applied to the body. And it's miserable for the vast majority of people. People don't like treating their body as a bunch of isolated parts and trying to make all those parts work good and then run on a a treadmill for prolonged periods of time. Um, that's not, that's not how the body's evolved to move. It's not how you tap into the right motivational systems to get people the best benefits from movement or to get people to really, um, to engage in that process. And so people don't, people don't even code the types of things that they enjoy doing a lot of the time as, as relevant exercise, you know, and it's not suffering. They don't think they're actually getting something benefit from it. That's not to say that suffering isn't also valuable, right? You know, I think that, you know, when I talk about play, sometimes people might get the impression that, that all we do is sort of giggle and, and twirl around in the woods. (laughs) (laughs) But it's like, yeah, there's also, there's also the parts of practice that, that are, that are hard and that are scary and that, you know, you do experience some kind of struggle. And I think struggle is really valuable. But the key is, is the struggle relevant to you? And does it help you unlock those moments of like profound aliveness and enjoyment? Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't take you to that, um, then I don't think that you're going to be very successful. 99% of people are not very successful sustaining a practice that doesn't give them those moments of deep joy. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. It, it, it makes me think back to some of the things that I've um, read and talked about and watched when we've discussed this concept of play. And there's so much that you're talking about, which which stirs up um, a real stark view of what our culture has become in, in, in the UK. And I'm sure that the US is the same. And um, there's a couple of things I just wanted to, to, to pick up on that you said, Rafe. One of them is around, um, there's, a, there's quite a famous TED talk that Ken Robinson did about the state of education. And he talks about like as, as kids, 95% of kids, on, when, they, when they, they do like a, a test or uh, a, an assignment, they, can, they show signs of creativity, high levels of creativity. And by the time we get to like 22, only 5% or something, I forget the exact statistics, are, are still showing as creative people. And there's something that's happening in the education system, which is stopping people from it or reducing our creativity as individuals. And I think that's so closely linked to what you mentioned about play and whether it's creativity in art or creativity in music or creativity in, in, um, in any, any form of, of endeavor. Those two things for me are so closely linked. And that's why I think what you've done is amazing because it, it's such a creative way to move and it's play and it's bringing those two things together. Um, one thing you mentioned was around fear. Um, there's obviously when you're doing stuff, when I look at parkour, I'm like, crikey, those guys have got like nerves of steel. Um, yeah. How do you overcome? I'm interested, what's your relationship with play and fear? Because what my assumption is from looking at the outside of someone who doesn't do, um, doesn't do parkour, playing more makes you less scared. And when you don't play, like when I go on my snowboard and I don't do it very often, I look at a jump, I'm terrified. 
but I'm not yeah. playing in that environment very often to build the confidence. Are those two things linked for you in terms of how you start new people on this journey if they are afraid? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'd like to go back to, and just address the creativity component. Yeah, go for really it, yeah. to me. So I want to talk about that and then I'll talk about the fear thing. So yeah, I think that that we, we are literally um, training the creativity out of people or it's very likely that we are because it's really important to understand that, that ed, the education system is a real, is a really new thing, right? It used to be only very edu- a very wealthy people had educations. And that was about creating sort of the type of mind who could have a good conversation at a dinner party with the queen. Um, and then the public education system or um, that developed later. And it started when we, we basically sent everyone when, when work primarily became factory based so now parents weren't around the farm with their kids. They needed, they needed some place for their kids to be. And they wanted people who would be good at, at, at working in factories. And the th- key thing about a factory is that you're, you're not supposed to be creative, mm. right? right? You're, you're, you're a machine. You're a cog in a machine that has to replicate behavior exactly the same over and over again. So the entire origin of our school system was to build people who could act like machines, Right. Yep. So that's a really important to understand. We we built it off of that. The, the problem is that we the nobody there's no factory work in the West anymore. Or very little. Right now, what's being demanded of by the economy is lateral thinking, is imagination, is creativity, and our entire education system is set up to basically shut that down. It doesn't want that. Yeah. And and play is absolutely critical to this, or it's very likely that play is absolutely critical to this because what play appears to do as one of its prime characteristics is the development of behavioral flexibility, the ability to see things in different ways, the ability to behave in novel ways. So when you, um, if you look at something like a cat, cats engage in a lot of, uh, of rough and tumble play, right? Cats love to stalk and pounce and bite things and chase things. And that's how cats catch their prey. So a first theory of why play is valuable is that, is that the animal needs to rehearse the patterns that are going to allow it to survive. Mm. So a baby cat likes to stalk and pounce things because adult cats need to stalk and pounce. So then they did research on, on cats and said, okay, well, are cats that are denied play worse at catching mice? And the surprising conclusion was, no, they're not. Actually, the patterns for, um, for, for kind of stalking prey are so deeply inset and hardwired into a cat's brain that the play doesn't appear to have any value to that. So what it turns out is that play seems to, at least in cats, and um, its primary role is in developing behavioral flexibility. If you take animals that are, if you look at animals that are not allowed to play, they become very anxious. Um, If anything happens that's out of the scope of what they normally experience. So if you have a dog that hasn't been allowed to roughhouse and play, it will become very anxious if you don't take it on a walk at the exact same time every day, if you don't feed it at the same time, if you don't feed it in the same way. Everything about its behavior is ritualized. And anything that takes it outside of that is very uh, anxiety-producing for the dog. So the primary value of play in a lot of animals seems to be that it maps out potentials and allows them to engage in more, more creativity, essentially. It's where we build creativity. And we, we have essentially created an education system that's about preventing people from engaging in the behavior that develops creativity. Yeah. Yeah. I think almost like going full circle back to 
something I said at the beginning about like rules and putting constraints on people on children that actually reducing that element of of play to the point where actually when we if you think of if you said to a kid we're going to play a game and one of the probably the first questions would be well what are the rules yeah um because we're just i don't know whether we that's something that then just gets put in us but it's it's those it's stopping that exploration. They wouldn't almost know what to do if there were no rules. But the interesting thing about that with kids with that is that if you actually get told, gave them a task yeah. or a game or whatever, and said, they said, what are the rules? And you said, there aren't any. It wouldn't be long before they made their own. They oh, would yeah. just define their own parameters of how they wanted to engage in play, which is a lot of what you're talking about. With that's moving with each other, moving with objects, moving in the environment. It's all just... Um, we had someone once come, a rugby coach. He was quite highly regarded, came in to do a session with us, and we were... We were, you know, professional rugby outfit, and we used to every you know training had rules and went whatever drills we were doing. Training had all these rules, and he, he came in. He literally had a ball. We had like two teams. And he went, okay, you're gonna you're gonna play, and we were sort of like, well, we'll play what? Like, and what's what's the dimensions of the pitch? And he was like, I don't know, whatever. Mm. And we were like, <laughs> I remember literally like now I see it a bit different. At the time, I was thinking, who is this clown? Like, what? Is, <laughs> do you know what I mean, he was just challenging us in such a different way about what we were thinking about the game we were playing. And, um, yeah. Right, if we're just going to try and bring this in towards a close, just touch on the part that we had about fear because we often get people that are coming to calisthenics in, in sort of say later years of their life, but they haven't got a background in doing a lot of this kind of work and we try and get them to do handstands and they're just a bit afraid of going upside down. Have you got any sort of like tips or any context around that which that would be useful for people? Yeah, I mean, so fear is a huge study within parkour, right? Um, and it's one of the real values of that practice for me. So we it's funny people talk about being fearless or appearing to be fearless we're not fearless and i i think it's it's really important to understand that that fear exists for a reason that you need fear that fear makes you alert um if there's a you want what you're looking for is to cultivate the right relationship with fear i think of it you want to be you want to be in control you want to ride your fear you don't want to be ridden by your fear so when you're training uh, something like parkour, you're actually trying to calibrate yourself to the right level of fear. You want to be aware of the things that might go wrong. And you want to be able to tune into um, to the environment really appropriately. And then you want to not have the fear make you overreact. You, you want to be in control of your attention. It's really key. What do you attend to? Mm-hmm. So when you're afraid, the things that you're afraid of, they push or pull your attention. And that, that gets in the way of performing the motor tasks that you need to perform. So you need enough fear to make you alert, to make you really focused. But if you have too much fear, all of a sudden you're reacting to things like the gap that you're going over or the, the, the fall on the other side, so much so that you can't control the movement because you're so overreactive. So we go through this process in, uh, in parkour called the breaking the jump process. First, you, you do jumps when you feel the call of the jump. You look at a jump and you and it says, like, there's something for you here. Like, there's a reason for you to do this jump. Um, then you have to assess the jump and make sure that it's really possible. Once you're, you begin that assessment process, as you kind of, like, map out that you might actually do this jump, you're going to start feeling some kind of fear. So you, you feel the call of the jump. You assess it and then you you experience fear and then you have to overcome your fear and to overcome your fear 
there's a variety of things that you can do. So one of these things is basically ramping your, your nervous system appropriately. So essentially as your, your sympathetic nervous system fires more and more powerfully, you tend to actually, if you, if your uh, sympathetic nervous system becomes too ramped up, you lose fine motor coordination and you lose uh, some of your conscious control. And that that's really problematic when you're trying to exercise skills. So if you watch someone do a heavy deadlift, um, You'll see them kind of slap themselves and shout and kind of um, ramp them, their nervous system really high. And that helps with the deadlift because it shuttles all your nervous energy and all your resources into your prime movers. And you don't really rely on a lot of fine motor control in a deadlift. But that same type of behavior is very dangerous when you're doing jumps at height. So what you see is that parkour athletes before they do, well-trained parkour athletes before they do a jump, what they tend to do is breathe with a through the nose, deep into the diaphragm, and breathe out through the mouth. And that's a calming signal to the nervous system. And at the same time, they'll shake. That's also a calming system to the nervous system. That, those are the most common behaviors. And then what they're going on internally is they're going to go through some, some sort of jump repeatedly in their brain. And they'll either just watch themselves be successful repeatedly, or if, um, or if there's ways in which they can fail that are not catastrophic, they'll go through how they will catch themselves if something goes wrong. All right, they'll start mapping out all the ways that they can control the situation, even if things don't go as well as possible. So you're going to go through this visualization process, and then you you feel that you've essentially mapped the territory. Right, you're literally creating a map of what's going to happen, and then you kind of lock on. The second one is joy, the playful aspect. Right, when you're engaged in play and you're really feeling fun and you're really tapped into flow, fear tends to, to disappear. So anything that gets you in there, which, whether it's listening to music or roughhousing with a friend or making some jokes, anything that helps you dissipate the tension and tap back into that flow state can be really valuable. And then the last one is like, a, I, I think of it as serenity, right? Um, but you might almost think of it as like a, a sense of, of, of love and surrender. <laughs> uh, you want to calm down and feel as if the, you're, you're just sort of, completely present in that moment and then you're ready to jump yeah. and so you, you recognize these things and you cultivate them and you learn to pay really deep attention to what's happening to you mentally uh, um, before the jump and that's the only way that it becomes safe to do these jumps at height right people see them and they think we're just crazy risk takers but actually you know the, the record of parkour athletes is, is very safe compared to a lot of you know extreme sports or um or team sports um there's, there's a, it's a, it's a, you know, the, the human being is really built to do these type of things. Great. We're going to wrap this up. It's been really interesting to get you some ideas and actually for us to delve a little bit deeper into. So we talk a lot about um, some of these concepts of play, but to yeah. really get your depth and knowledge on those has been, has been really, really interesting um, and definitely taking it to a level that we haven't really sort of discussed with anyone before. So we really appreciate your time and um, giving us, giving that so generously to us until next time. Class dismissed. We hope you've enjoyed this week's uh, School of Car Science podcast playground session. If you have enjoyed it, and we would really appreciate it if you would head over to iTunes or whatever platform you're enjoying this on and give us a five-star review. We realise there is one to four, but really it's only about the five stars. Mm -hmm. And that helps people to find us and we get to share this information with others. We hopefully can help them to redefine their impossible. Yeah, it's totally not about just trying to help our build us some confidence. <laughs> no. <laughs> We're not at all insecure. So until next week, class dismissed. <laughs>